Welcome to Cato Daily Podcast with your host, Anastasia Glova. Today is Thursday, March 22nd. In a recent podcast, George Mason University economics professor Tyler Cowen made the controversial case for embracing growing positive liberty as opposed to the negative liberty that libertarians usually advocate. In today's podcast, Cato Institute's own Tom Palmer argues that moving towards more positive liberty is a perilous approach that could lead us to something like the very opposite of freedom. First, let's just define our terms. Would you please differentiate between negative and positive liberty? Well, negative liberty as a distinction normally means that you are free from the unwelcome interaction of others, that people cannot force you to do things, and that says you're free from them. Those who have talked about positive liberty have talked about what you're free to do. And that covers a multitude of different theories. Some of them view positive liberty as just an increase in opportunities or an increase in wealth. Others have considered it to be in charge of your own desires. You're only free if you desire the things that you desire to desire. So, for instance, if you smoke but you would rather not smoke, you're unfree if you continue smoking. You're only free if your actions are in conformity with what are called your second-order preferences. That's another theory of positive liberty. And then a third one often associated with this is the idea of collective liberty, that real positive liberty is being involved in the public square, determining those policies that will then be imposed on everyone. So positive liberty is not just one thing. It's a term that's used frequently in very confusing ways by philosophers without distinguishing the different senses in which they use the term. Tyler Cowan of the blog Marginal Revolution made the case in the podcast that libertarians should embrace growing positive liberties. What do you say to that? I admire him as an economist. He's a good friend. I like him. But I found that a very, very confused statement. It's a confusion of wealth with liberty. He says that positive liberty is where it's at. He says it's what people really care about. It's, he says, the real ball game. His point is that having free markets, free societies, generates more opportunities for people and more wealth, more things that you can do. You can fly across the ocean now. People couldn't do that 100 years ago. And he says that's another kind of liberty, the positive liberty to do things. I think that's pure, unadulterated confusion. It's one of the benefits of liberty, is that we have more wealth. But we shouldn't confuse the consequence of a policy with the policy itself. Societies that are freer are also wealthier, because under conditions of freedom and free cooperation, people are able to produce more wealth. That's one reason, certainly a very powerful one, to favor liberty. People live longer, they have better lives, they have more access to education, science, technology, and so on. But it's a mistake to confuse the benefit of liberty with liberty itself. And I think that's the fundamental error that Tyler has made. We've enabled people to pursue an education, have a good minimum standard of living, have access to health care, and these are positive liberties. What's wrong with that? It's, I think, a mistake to say that having a telephone means that you're freer than people who didn't have telephones. I'll give you a simple thought experiment. Take Germany in the year, let's say, 1880 and in the year 1939. 1939, Germans could make phone calls. They could do all kinds of things that Germans could not do in the year 1880. But which was the freer society? Come on, that's easy. Although they were had more opportunities under National Socialism because technology had advanced, irrespective of National Socialism, they were less free people. But by Tyler's definition, they were clearly freer. 
To me, this doesn't make any sense. And the root confusion is to confuse the benefits of freedom, one of which is wealth and increasing opportunities to interact with other people, with the freedom itself, with a system of rules that guarantee equal rights for every person under the law, which we call freedom. This is the same mistake that appeared in the end of the the 19th century, rather, among liberals as well, which was to confuse wealth with liberty. And I'll give you a quotation from the year 1900 from one of those liberals, an American writer, E.L. Godkin, from The Nation. And he described how tremendously wealthy society had become. Remember, this is 1900, in the previous 100 years because of freedom. He wrote, To the principles and precepts of liberalism, the prodigious material progress of the age was largely due. Freed from the vexatious meddling of governments, men devoted themselves to their natural task, the bettering of their condition, with the wonderful results which surround us. But it now seems that its material comfort has blinded the eyes of the present generation to the cause which made it possible. Godkin's point here is to say that people focused only on the wealth, And they said, look, it's wealth that we're about. That's what we want. And if we could have government action to create wealth, let's do that and get it directly. This led to the downfall of that phase of classical liberalism. And I fear that Tyler and others are making exactly the same mistake today, not focusing on the root principles of individual liberty, to be free from arbitrary power, to live according to the same law, to be equal before the law, and instead to focus on the benefits that come from that and say, no, no, That's real liberty. Having a telephone, having an iPod is more liberty. I think it's conceptually confused and extremely dangerous for the future of the movement for personal liberty. Is this distinction between positive rights and negative rights perhaps a false dichotomy? For example, protection against theft or murder requires state action, which is funded through taxation. So protection then becomes a positive liberty. That's an interesting question that's been raised about whether individuals have a right that the state protect them. As a matter of American constitutional law, you don't. You do not have a cause of action if the police fail to protect you. What we do have is a claim as taxpayers that we hope that the government will do that. But it does not follow that if they fail to do that, that they have violated my rights. The criminal who assaulted me violated my rights. Another person who fails to come to my defense has not necessarily violated my rights. Many people are surprised to find they don't actually have a legal right that they can claim against government for defense against intruders, which is kind of shocking. It certainly shocked me the first time I found that out. You cannot sue them because they failed to protect your rights. The root understanding of rights is that you should be able to do what you want with what is justly yours. So, for instance, my right might be characterized as a positive right. If you were to owe me $10, I have a right that you give me $10. In a sense, you could call that a positive right. We could also cause it a negative right that no one else could interfere with our transaction. So I find the distinction actually not very useful in characterizing legal relationships among persons, whether they're characterized as positive or negative. Their rights to engage in certain actions. I have a positive right to sing if I want to in my own home. Uh, not a right to sing in your home if you don't like that, if you don't welcome me, because it's the property rights that delineates how these other rights are to be exercised. I take it then that you would disagree with Tyler in saying that the welfare state is something that's here to stay as a natural and inevitable consequence of our increased wealth. He did raise a very interesting question of a possible trade-off, but I think he's willing to make peace with it much more rapidly or readily than I would. 
and that is, as we eliminated many obstacles to the creation of wealth, command and control regulations, restrictions on market entry, price controls, and so on, as we brought about lower marginal tax rates and disincentives to wealth production, people produce more wealth. The consequence of that is there's more stuff available for the government to redistribute. So we get a welfare state that has grown in its redistributive capacities, although in many ways it's less powerful than it was 20, 30, or 40 years ago. It can't control our lives through direct commands as it did in, say, 1960, where you had enormous economic regulation through regulatory agencies and restrictions on trade and the like. So one of the consequences is as society gets bigger, as it becomes wealthier, government can grow as well. Frankly, however, it is not at a peak as a percentage of gross domestic product. Government has consumed much larger percentages than it does today. As an absolute amount, it's growing, but so is the whole economy as a whole. Now, should we just make peace with that? Well, I don't like government doing unnecessary things, and I don't like the dependence on state power that it engenders and the blocking off of new options, new forms of creativity through the entrepreneurship of the market. So I don't think that it's a deal that we have to accept. One consequence of lowering tax rates, for example, is sometimes tax revenues do go up. This is what the supply siders stressed. In my opinion, that's not something to be welcomed. It's an unfortunate side consequence of the increase in wealth, is that tax revenues may also go up. Tyler somehow seems to think it's a package deal. If you want one, you must want the other. I view it differently. To me, it's a challenge to figure out how can we restrain the state in the face of a growing economy and growing tax revenues. What institutional mechanisms could we bring about to restrict the state to some legitimate functions and allow civil society to fill all the rest of the space that's currently crowded out by the welfare state? You've been highly critical of positive liberties so far, but do you see them as somehow dangerous? Well, certainly I'd see it as taking it very radically away from the mainstream tradition of classical liberalism and libertarianism, in which liberty is understood as a political relationship or legal relationship among persons. All of us are equal before the law, such that we live in a free society. No one has power over another person to compel them to smoke or not smoke or engage in this or that behavior through threats of force or violation of their rights. One of the dangers of this approach, the so-called positive liberty approach, is for one thing it's focused on want satisfaction because it opens the door to the question of, well, which wants? Your true wants, your true preferences, your higher preferences? People such as Harry Frankfurt, a very distinguished philosopher, have argued that you're only free if you act in accordance with your second-order preferences, right? the preferences for having preferences. And the state, of course, can use what might, on the surface, to some unsophisticated, naive, dumb libertarian, look like coercion, like forcing you not to smoke or forcing you to take piano lessons. But on a higher approach of positive liberty is really liberating you because it's forcing you to do what you really want to do. That's at the root of Rousseau's notion when he says in the social contract that we must force men to be free. He's arguing that we have to force them to act in accordance with their true will, the general will, not their merely phenomenal will, what they think they want, but what they really want, but are too stupid or ignorant or blinded by superstition to know that they really want. That's opening the door towards something that is really the opposite of classical liberalism, the opposite of libertarian approaches. And so in that sense, I think it's a conceptual confusion that Tyler and others have made, which can be dealt with as a simple confusion. I think he's wrong. He's confused wealth with liberty. 
But it also opens the door towards a wide array of very, very anti-libertarian ideas in which we're going to exercise coercion on people for really what is their real good, their higher good, or to bring them benefits directly without a focus on the institutional foundations, the rules of just conduct that are the framework of a free society, and in my opinion, the proper concern of an advocate of liberty. The majority of support for the Cato Institute's work comes from individuals, and Cato depends solely on tax-deductible contributions to provide the public with a wealth of free resources, including this podcast. We hope you'll consider supporting or even joining Cato. For information, please go to www.cato.org.